In this episode of the Living for Truth podcast, we resume our reading of Christianity Through the Centuries, A History of the Christian Church by Earl E. Carnes. We come now to chapter 42 in the era titled Church and Society in Tension since 1914. Chapter 42 is titled Decline and Expansion in Church Growth. Christianity is still the largest religious group in the world, but in Europe, South Africa, Australia, and North America, liberalism, neo-orthodoxy, and radical theologies have weakened the mainline churches. These churches have also opted for social and political salvation instead of salvation of souls as a priority. An ecumenism based on organization has led to a loss of organismic spiritual unity. Grassroots church members are indifferent and even hostile to such ecumenism. Dean Kelly, in Why Conservative Churches Are Growing, in 1972, pointed out the decline in numbers, missionaries, and giving since 1945 as a result of these churches abandoning the theological absolutes of orthodoxy and substituting minimal doctrinal and moral demands for their members. This is in contrast to the surprising growth of evangelicals in numbers, giving, and missionaries, especially in the Third World, of the Pacific Rim, nations of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Christians numbered 1.7 million, or a little over 30% of the world population of, of about 5.3 billion in 1990, compared with about 34.4% in 1900. Muslims numbered over a billion, or nearly 20% of the world's people. Of the Christians, approximately 960 million are Roman Catholics, nearly 550 million are Protestants, and over 150 million are Evangelicals. These figures are conservative estimates. Christianity has become a universal and global religion, with Evangelicals growing faster than the world's population. Particularly in the Third World Christian Mission, has become a global concern with over 50,000 missionaries from Africa, Asia, and Latin America. To prevent complacency, Christians must be aware that liberalism is declining and that evangelical churches gain more members by birth and transfer than by conversion in North America and Europe. A pause in the reading here. That statement cannot be true in the year 2020. This book is definitely showing its age. Let's, re- let's resume the reading. Evangelicals are not influencing culture in proportion to their numbers. That is a true statement. Neither, nearly three-quarters of evangelicals live outside of Europe and North America. A larger trend, however, is the decline of mainline churches since World War II. In the United States, the Presbyterian Church, USA, lost more than 1.5 million members Between 1965 and 1995, while the Episcopal Church declined 30%, the United Methodist Church over 15%, and the Christian Church 42%. In England, the the Anglican Church lost a quarter of its members, while Methodists and Congregationalists lost about one-third each. These churches were more liberal in theology. Similar losses were experienced in Australian and South African churches. The United Church of Canada was declined by about one-third of its members. Church giving has also declined in these churches. The number of missionaries sent out by mainline denominations in America has decreased from approximately 11,000 in 1925 to 3,000 in 1985. Enrollment in Roman Catholic seminaries declined from more than 22,000 in 1968 to under 5,000 in 1988. The number of women taking vows as nuns has also plummeted. By contrast, conservative denominations have increased in numbers, giving, and missionaries. Between 1965 and 1985, the Assemblies of God increased about 120%, the Church of the Nazarene nearly 50%, and the Southern Baptist Convention nearly 40%. Giving rose in similar proportions. The number of evangelical missionaries also increased by about 10,000 in 1953, to over 35,000 in 1985. At the same time, mainline missionaries declined by more than 50%. While mainline churches decline all over the world, the greatest growth of evangelical churches is in the East Asian Pacific Rim, Latin America, and Africa. 
let us hope that they will be able to translate this spiritual energy into only not only into saving souls but also as christian citizens for morality in the public arena into social and political influence there is now much interest in the fact than techniques of church growth roman numeral i or one the basic principles of church growth from the the above considerations we are led to the development of the indigenous church as the main factor in church growth this basic idea is as old as the new testament the acts of the apostles records that paul planted churches and organized them as self-governing self-supporting and self-disciplining and self-propagating he wrote letters to them and revisited them to help in dealing with problems that arose Henry Venn, 1796-1873, the Anglican secretary to the Church Missionary Society from 1848 to 1873, urged missionaries to make the national church self-supporting, self-governing, and self-propagating with a national clergy as soon as possible. This was in direct opposition to the practice not only of converting the nationals, to Christ, but also of civilizing them in Europe, way, European ways under the paternal guidance of missionaries. Rufus Anderson, secretary of the ABCFM from 1826 to 1856, had similar principles. John L. Nevius, a Presbyterian missionary in China, advocated the same principles. He also added the responsibility to train lay converts in the Bible and prayer, to serve as apprentices with missionaries, to be supported by the national churches instead of by missionaries, and to build churches in the architecture of the local area. His ideas appeared in the Chinese Recorder in 1885, and later in book form. He expressed these ideas to missionaries in Korea in 1890, and the Presbyterian Mission made use of them in the revival of 1907. The Korean church now embraces over 25% of the population, most of whom are evangelical. Donald McGavin, or McGavran, a third-generation Christian church missionary who served in India from 1925 to 1954, wondered why missions of the paternal outpost style grew so slowly, while other styles grew more quickly. He studied the situation carefully for years. He saw the gospel proclamation or discipling worked best in homogeneous units that had a common culture, such as the family, the clan, or the tribe. He linked biblical principle to sociology and anthropology to assess readiness or receptivity of people groups. The people would then be evangelized as groups rather than as individuals. The group one to Christ could then be perfected or nurtured. McGavran's conclusions appeared in The Bridges of God in 1955 and Understanding Church Growth. When McGavran returned to the United States, he set up an institute of church growth in 1961 at Northwest College in Eugene, Oregon. In 1965, he moved to Fuller Seminary, where the Institute of Church Growth became part of the School of World Missions, and he its dean. He taught at Fuller until 1980. He was the pioneer of church growth studies and their application to missions. Ralph Winter, another church growth leader, served as a missionary in Guatemala in 1957 and 65, and was a professor in Fuller Seminary in 1966. To 1975, the in 1976, a college campus was purchased in Pasadena for $15 million, and it became the home of Winter's United States Center of World Missions. The William Carey Press, the William Carey University, and offices of missionary organizations. Winter saw the need of training support for missionaries and identification of unreached people groups. His goal became people, churches in each of the unreached pe people groups by A.D. 2000. He led an organ in organizing the American Society of Missiology in 1972. While McGavran and Winter laid the foundations for church growth in missions, others who studied at Fuller and the U.S. Center carried their ideas of church growth in missions all over the world, evangelizing people groups. Megachurch leaders also made use of their ideas. Roman numeral two. Church growth and missions. Means for realizing church growth. Heading A. Before we begin this section, I have to say something else. I'm, I'm seeing a trend in the latter portions of this history book 
um, that has caused great concern for me. Church growth tactics have proven themselves to be dangerous. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, why? Why would it be bad for us to seek to have a big church? Because big churches entertain goats. And oftentimes in these church growth movements and tactics, in seeking to win or 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 approach an entire group of people, there are going to be unsaved people in that group. If you seek to evangelize through a clan or a tribe or a family, there will be unsaved people in that group. So in a sense, to boil it down, church growth tactics have sought to entertain goats while starving the sheep. God's sheep will hear his voice. We are, as the church, we are commanded to go and preach the gospel. That is how God calls people to himself. And it is done on an individual basis. Yes, there can be times when we are ministering the gospel to groups of people. But in the case of church growth tactics, we cannot assume that bringing large numbers of people into the church is going to be deemed successful in the eyes of God merely based on the fact that we are reaching, quote-unquote, more people. Okay, that's enough I'm going to say about that. Let's resume this reading now. Roman numeral two, church growth in missions. With this background for church growth in mind, we can consider the means by which the ideas of Nevius, McGavran, and Winter may be realized. They include revival, evangelism, linguistics, Bible distribution, third world missionaries, electronics, and megachurches. Numerous examples of these abound in mission fields. Number one, revival has been an important factor in church growth since the Reformation. The Pentecostal revival beginning in 1901 has resulted in many additions to churches abroad. China and Korea experienced great revivals from 1900 to 1910, partly because of adopting Nebius's principles of church growth. The East African revival from 1929, led at first by Joe Church and Simon Sambibi, resulted in tremendous growth of the church and created spiritual forces still apparent in, the, in that area. When missionaries were forced to leave the Walamo tribe in Ethiopia in 1937 because of Mussolini's invasion, there were 48 believers. This nucleus had grown to 10,000 in churches patterned after the New Testament church when missionaries returned to ni in 1945. The church on the island of Timor in Indonesia grew in the mid-60s from 100,000 to over 300,000 as a result of revival. The co in communist China, the number of evangelical Christians grew from 1 million in 1949 to more than 50 million in the 1990s through house churches in spite of persecution. The indigenous churches in the mountain tribes of Taiwan experienced great increase through revival. The Holy Spirit moving in the churches through prayer and preaching of the word is still, of course, the greatest factor in church growth. Number two, Bible translation into the vernacular languages has been another element in church growth. Cameron Townsend, founded of the, founder of the Wycliffe Bible Translators, developed the Summer Institute of Linguistics, or SIL, in 1934 to train men and women to learn the tran and translate the Bible in unwritten languages. Missionaries who have completed this training are able to go to people of various language groups and use scientific linguistic and anthropological training to reduce the languages to writing and translate the scriptures into the vernacular with amazing results in church growth. Over 18,000 people have had SIL training. By 1994, Wycliffe had more than 5,200 missionaries and $90 million in income per year for their work. They were working with 900 languages, of which approximately 400 have been completed. Graduates of the SIL serve with a variety of mission boards as well as the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Cameron Townsend, who led this great work, was initially a missionary among the Cacaquels in Guatemala. He had reduced their language to writing and translated the New Testament into the vernacular in 1929. This brought about great church growth. Wycliffe has expanded all over the world, even into Russia, when it was still under the communist regime. Wycliffe missionaries are careful not to become involved in local politics and yet work with the authorities on reducing 
tribal languages to writing. The United Bible Society supported translation of the Bible to make its message available to people groups. In the 1994 report revealed that the entire Bible has been published in more than 340 languages and the New Testament in more than 820 languages. Part of all of the Bible has been published in nearly 2,100 of the world's 6,000 languages. Amen. Careful paraphrasing of the Living Bible in 1971 of Kenneth Taylor into languages all over the world has brought biblical truth to many groups. This work has an impact in other languages and countries that is even greater than his paraphrase in common English in the United States, John Eliot's Bible for the Eloquine, El- Algonquin Indians, 1663, blazed a trail for such a force promoting church growth. Number three, the third world missionaries from outside of North America and Europe have steadily increased in numbers since World War II. There were more than 50,000 such missionaries serving in the early 90s in cross-cultural situations. In 1989, India had more than 9,000, Korea had approximately 1,200, and Burma more than 2,500. All of these were Christians from third world countries serving in cross-cultural ministries in their homelands or abroad. Sources of missionaries are now global. Number four, parachurch missionary organizations now abound. They are similar to the voluntary non-denominational societies that were active in the United States from about 1800 to 1835. A Congress on the world's on the Church's worldwide mission held in Wheaton, Illinois, in April 1966, discussed the state of missions and future strategies. It brought together 938 delegates from 150 mission boards representing 13,000 missionaries in 71 countries. The final Wheaton Declaration held by the held up the Bible as the source of the gospel of the cross, which is the message of the church. Recruitment of missionaries was stimulated by the deaths of five missionaries at the hands of the Aka Indian tribe in Ecuador in 1956. Regular meetings of college students at Urbana, Illinois, since the initial meeting in Toronto in 1946, have raised many recruits. The meeting in 1990 brought 19,262 students and participants together under InterVarsity auspices to consider the scriptures and the challenge of missions. Short Terms Abroad has recruited persons with needed specialties to serve in other countries for a term or one or more years. Mission radio stations, HCJB in Ecuador, FEBC in Manila, Transworld Radio, and ELWA in Liberia have been the leaders in reaching non-Christians by shortwave radio and television. Paul Freed's Transworld Radio Network, since its founding in 1960, has enjoyed a European-wide audience. R. Kenneth Strachan of the Latin American Mission moved the mission toward national control when he was director in 1945 to 1965. He developed evangelism in depth, which was first used successfully in 1960 in Nicaragua. He involves enlisting national Christians in prayer bands and training them in how to reach their neighbors for Christ. This technique has seen has since been used all over the world. Theological education, by extension, was originated by James Emery and Ralph Winter in the Presbyterian Evangelical Seminary in Guatemala in 1963. In this program, the local lay pastor works at his vocation and as a minister while he studies for written materials, including theology, history, practical work, and particularly the Bible. Periodic visits to a center with the seminary teachers permits him to ask questions and deal with problems. In 1977, there were over 30,000 in 75 countries studying and learning while they ministered and made a living. Movement of mission personnel and supplies is done by such organizations as Jungle Aviation and Radio Service, or JARS, and Missionary Aviation Fellowship, or MAF. MAF was organized in 1944 by two World War II flyers, Elizabeth Green, who was the first who was in the Air Force to gain flying ability, wrote an article for a Christian magazine in which she told of the need for planes to ferry missionaries and supplies to remote fields. A former naval pilot joined with her in setting up MAF. Elizabeth flew planes in Mexico, Africa, and Iran. Ariane Java, 
MAF, or MAF, now serves over 300 Christian groups, Moody Bible Institute has developed a school to train missionary pilots. Missionary Endeavor has been strengthened by missionary societies cooperating in the Interdenominational Foreign Missions Association, founded in 1917, by non-denominational faith missions groups, and the Evangelical Foreign Missions Association, founded in 1945 by the National Association of Evangelicals. These organizations, with relatively small amounts of money, serve over a third of all North American missionaries. They provide information, services, and coordination of missionary effort. Third World Christians have begun to make an active part in missions. Over 50,000 of their personnel are in the field. These organizations aid denominational and independent missionaries with valuable assistance to their work. In Russia, Co-Mission brings 85 organizations together to coordinate their work of evangelism in the schools. They supply books and train teachers to bring moral and spiritual values into Russia, society through the schools. Number five, urban mass evangelism with crusades by notable evangelists has resulted in church growth in many lands. In their crusades abroad, Billy Graham and Louis Palau have won many people for the churches to disciple. In 1954, Tommy Hicks enlisted the aid of Juan Perón, dictator of Argentina, to get the use of the great arena where about three million people met. He received 30,000 decision cards indicating acceptance of Christ. Richard W. F. Bonk, a German Pentecostal, has had good reports with Africans in tent meetings. His first tent held 10,000 in 1983. Another had 34,000 seats, and as many as 250,000 attended one of, the, one of his services at a crusade in Nigeria. Working in urban areas, these evangelists can help churches grow. Rural people are flocking to cities all over the world. In 1950, there were at least 2 million people in each of 26 cities. By 1992, there were 97 cities with populations ranging from 2 to 30 million. Mexico City had more than 20 million people. Tokyo, Yokoma, 29 million. Sao Paulo, Brazil, almost 18 million. Seoul, over 16 million and Bombay, 13 million. In cities such as these, mass evangelism can greatly help the church. Take a pause. This is a pause from our reading. I know that I'm interjecting more of my own personal thoughts at this point in the reading, but as we're coming into the latter portions of this, this book, it is quite obvious to see that the datedness of this book has not been able to see the fruit, which is bad fruit, of these evangelistic efforts. Yes, Africa saw a great influx of tent meetings and people meeting together under quote-unquote Christianity, but what that ultimately gave birth to in the latter 90s and in the present-day situation of the early 20th, 21st century is a massive false doctrine. This Pentecostal push that rooted itself in Africa, has given way to the word of faith movement that is a cancer and beyond a blight in the church. And I use that church term church loosely. Africa is now home to the largest group of word faith teachers, false teachers in the world. And America is, is, is right there fueling the whole movement. So to say that these things are seen in a positive light, I think what we can do is see that when we, are f when we fail to discern the efforts of quote-unquote mission groups, and we fail to discern them in light of the Bible, they can lead to bad fruit in the future, like what we see today with the inception of the Word of Faith movement and prosperity theology. These things are dangerous and they are hurting the church. When missions is, is taken on outside of the context of the Great Commission and founded in biblical theology and doctrine, you can expect the church to get hurt. And so it is with the idea of church growth tactics. Okay, uh, I'll leave off there and we will resume our reading now. Number six, the phenomena 
of mega churches with more than 2,000 members, so common now in the United States, has also emerged mostly in the Pacific Rim of East Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Pentecostals seem to gravitate to mega churches, but Presbyterians, Baptists, and Methodists also have many such churches, especially in Korea. The growth of megachurches has gone hand-in-hand with the urbanization already discussed. A large number of the world's superchurches in Korea. The Presbyterian Young Nak Church has well over 60,000 members, and the Shonghun and the Maing Sun churches each have about 30,000 members. The Kwang Lim Methodist Church in Seoul has about 73,000 members. The Songnak Baptist Church has more than 20,000 members. The Yudofu Gospel Church in South Korea, a Pentecostal church led by Paul Yonggi Chao, is the largest church in the world with about 800,000 members. When Chao collapsed from overwork in 1964, he delegated responsibility to others who supervised smaller units. Thus, the church was more than 55,000 has more than 55,000 deacons and deaconesses responsible for small cell groups or home groups or house groups of several families each. Chow gives the leaders cassettes with sermons and instructions each week to pass to their cells. There is a measure of emotion and mysticism, but much prayer and Bible study, a charismatic leader and trained cell leaders undergird the work. Chow has worked with Robert Schuller and Bill Hybels in training leaders to build these superchurches. The, seg- the second largest megachurch in the world is Jotebec Pentecostal Methodist Church in Santiago, Chile. This church has more had more than 350,000 members in 1990 under Javier Vasquez. The main church seats 16,000 people. Those who cannot get into the church on Sunday have meetings in satellite churches with local leaders. They all hold street meetings before the service to invite people to worship with them. The vision of the future church of Buenos Aires claimed 85,000 members in 1990. The main Christian congregation church in Brazil has nearly 70,000 in attendance. The Miracle Center in Benin, Nigeria has between 10,000 and 20,000 worshiping each Sunday. Number 7. The electronic churches in Ecuador, Manila, Monte Carlo, and Liberia have operated successfully, broadcasting news, music, and the gospel throughout shortwave AM and FM radio and television. This is also a means of reaching closed lands such as Russia, China, and Arabic countries. All of these these means of making the gospel known have helped the church grow in Latin America, the Pacific Rim Asian nations, and Africa. Although some work may be superficial, people are being reached who otherwise might not have been. To that, I would agree. Heading B. Church Growth in North America and Europe North America and Europe are still the main sources of support and personnel for missions work in other lands. Since World War II, evangelical churches on these continents have grown greatly in numbers, giving the missionaries giving and missionaries. Church growth ideas have been used in these areas with profit to the churches. Number one, since World War II, revival has been mainly regional and local, and it has been a means of advancing church growth. The Saskatoon, in the Canadian province of Saskatchewan, a revival occurred in Ebenezer Baptist Church, pastored by Wilbert MacLeod. Ralph and and Lou Sutera held meetings in the church in October 1971. Because of the large crowds, they moved to a larger auditorium and finally to the Civic Auditorium, which seated 2,000. Many were converted and often testified and prayed until after midnight at the afterglow meetings that followed the services. The revival was carried to Vancouver, Winnipeg, and Toronto by teams from the church. College awakenings at Wheaton Wheaton College in 1936, 43, 50, and 70, and 95, and at Asbury College in 1950, 58, and 1970, remind one of the Yale University revival under Timothy Dwight. The special speaker at Wheaton College in February 1950 was Edwin Johnson, fresh from a revival in his own church in Seattle. Students and faculty confessed sins, righted wrongs, and experienced spiritual renewal. In a meeting that lasted from about 7 o'clock Wednesday evening until Friday morning, 
The revival was highly publicized in newspapers, but the best publicity was in the change in the lives of the many people. A similar revival occurred in Asbury College in February 1970. For 185 hours, students and others confessed sins, testified, prayed, and sang. Teams of students who went to other colleges, seminaries, and churches were used by God to bring revival. Revival in colleges reminiscent of that in Yale in 1802 occurred in in late January 1995 at Howard Payne University in Brownwood, Texas. It spread to Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, Beeson School of Divinity in Birmingham, Alabama, Olivet Nazarene University in Kankakee, Illinois, Criswell College in Dallas, Houston Baptist University, Wheaton College, Gordon College, Hope College in Michigan, and other colleges, Bible schools, and seminaries. The revival in Wheaton began on Sunday, March 19th, in the weekly World Christian Fellowship meeting when, at about 8 p.m., Howard Payne University students spoke at the spoke of the January revival in their in their school. It continued until 6 a.m. Monday was confessions of pride, hatred, immorality, cheating, theft, addictions, and other sins. Meetings on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday evenings lasted until about 2 a.m. Wednesday and Thursday evenings were given to worship, testimony, praise, and instruction. A Wheaton team at Hope College, Michigan, brought similar revival there. All of these meetings were similar to those in Wheaton in 1950 and Asbury in 1970. Most occurred generally through students though some, in 1995, came through the faculty. The Jesus People Movement already discussed won thousands of hippie dropouts to to Christ in the late 60s. Charismatic revival in the the 60s also brought renewal to, to many in the Roman Catholic and Protestant mainline denominations. A consideration of revivals from the times of the Pietists and the times of the Wesleys reveals common characteristics. Revivals have developed on the eastern and western shores of the Atlantic and North America, North Americans, British, Scandinavians, Germans, Dutch, and Swiss as the main recipients. They occurred usually among lower and middle class people, but they also affected the upper class. They were usually farm and village oriented in the er- earlier periods. Awakenings were more often Calvinistic in theology, except for those under the Wesleys and Finney. Through revival, men and women of the laity came to the fore. Wesley and Frelinghuysen used laymen to lead classes and prayer meetings. Many men of wealth, such as John Thornton and British stock speculator Robert Anthington, gave generously for evangelism, revival, and reform. In North America, the Tappans backed Finney, and John Wanamaker backed Moody. Women were also important in revival. Hannah Ball set up the first Sunday school in England in 1769. Finney's second wife, Lydia, and Frances Willard held women's meetings. Phoebe Palmer was one of the chief architects of holiness churches and meetings. Lady Huntington initiated and supported revival. Small groups or classes for discipling converts were used by Whitfield, Wesley, and others. The preaching of godly charismatic leaders like Edwards, McCulloch, and Robe, who stressed justification by faith and an emphasis upon prevailing prayer, were used in the coming of revival before 1740. Men such as Wesley, Finney, Moody, and Graham claimed a special filling of the Holy Spirit. Revival also stimulated ecumenism, as God's love drew people together across denominational boundaries. These common characteristics of revival should have relevance also for our day. The magnitude of the fruit, or results, of revival is shown in the chart on page 523. A godly walk, aggressive individuals, corporate witness, and hard work resulted in various reforms. Sometimes these results of revival are confused with revival. Number two, Billy Graham and Louis Palau have have promoted church growth through their evangelistic crusades in North America and and provide leadership by word and example to other evangelists. Revival and conversions occur in their counselor training classes, pastor's schools, and other meetings. Louis Palau held most of his more than 100 crusades in Latin America as well as North America. Number three, the electronic church has also been an agency in church growth in North America. The first church service to be broadcast was on January 2, 1921 from Calvary Episcopal Church in Pittsburgh. 
Paul Rader began radio services in Chicago in June 1922. R.R. R. Brown began his church of the air broadcast on April 8, 1923 from his Christian and Missionary Tabernacle in Omaha. The broadcast continued until 1977. Amy Simple McPherson and her own radio station in 1924. Charles E. Fuller began full-time broadcasting in 1933, and from 1937, his old-fashioned revival hour was featured on the Mutual Broadcasting Network nationally. The scholarly Walter Mayer was a popular regard regular preacher for the Lutheran Hour over 1,200 stations between 1935 and 1950. When television emerged, Billy Graham began to telecast his crusades on November 5, 1950. Jerry Falwell and Robert Schuller became national televangelists in promoting church growth. Pat Robertson began his Christian Broadcasting Network in 1960. He also initiated Regent University with graduate courses in law and related fields to promote public morality. Most of these broadcasters urged listeners and viewers to attend local churches to develop their spiritual lives. Number four. Parachurch organizations and megachurches became prominent after World War II. In America, as well as in other lands, some feel that this trend reflects liberal denominational decline and that these groups will replace denominations. More likely, they will become loosely structured quasi-denominations as the ties of the more than 1,400 churches of the Willow Creek Association seems to suggest. Megachurches borrow the marketing approach from business, surveys from sociology, and ideas from anthropology to attract people and create a user-friendly church. The hope they hope to reach unchurched, affluent, middle-class suburbanites and have become an important agency for church growth. The largest churches include First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, with about 20,000 members. Willow Creek Community Church near Chicago with more than 15,000 and Calvary Chapel in Southern California with 13,000, one must remember that before the megachurch phenomena occurred, there were many large denominational and independent churches with over 2,000 members. The Willow Creek Community Church is an evangelical megachurch that holds to the inerrancy of the Bible. It was organized in 1975 in a theater after a survey of the area by the pastor Bill Hybels and three friends. They found that people avoided churches with too much stress on money, embarrassing attention in services, and long, boring sermons that were irrelevant to life. Hybels uses drama, multimedia presentations, and short, relevant biblical sermons. This speaks to his upper-middle class, well-educated suburbanites of Barrington, Illinois. In 1977, the church brought 90 acres, bought 90 acres of land and built a user-friendly church. Saturday evening and Sunday services are geared to seekers. Up to 6,000 are discipled in Wednesday and Thursday services, and in 1995, about 12,000 attended Sunday services, which were led by a multiple staff. The church sponsors a variety of ministries, such as car repair and counseling through cell groups formed to help people in their spiritual growth. The church also reached out to other churches with how-to-do-it leadership conferences and has formed a loose Willow Creek Association that by 1995 included 1,400 churches in a quasi-denomination. These conferences include Heibel's Seven Steps, which emphasizes building personal relationships, oral witness, invitations to service, worship, small groups organized under 1,500 lay leaders for the development of spiritual maturity, work in the church, and stewardship. There seems to be little mention of foreign missions. Willow Creek Community Resources, in collaboration with Zondervan Publishing House, makes materials available in print. Robert H. Schuller. Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove in Los Angeles is another mega church. The first service in 1955 began with the Reformed Church in America, minister preaching from the marquee of an open-air theater to people in their cars. His organization built the Crystal Cathedral of glass and steel with seats for over 4,000 at a cost of more than $15 million. His hour of power from the church reaches and attracts many unchurched. Over 6,500 are in the church services each Sunday. His theology of self-esteem, based on possibility thinking, through his faith resembles Norman Vincent Peale's idea of positive thinking. 
His Institute for Successful Church Leadership reaches out to pastors seeking large church growth. At least 80 such churches are associated in a loose organization. He follows a market-based approach, borrows techniques techniques from business, and desires to create a user-friendly church. The Barna Research Group Limited, organized in 1984 by George Barna, does marketing research and makes surveys to help parachurch organizations and megachurches. It has helped the Salvation Army, World Vision, and Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, the American Bible Society, Fuller and Dallas Seminaries, and megachurches. Barna provides general or specific surveys and books that give the results of general annual surveys to reveal religious trends. They have an inventory available to megachurches. These megachurches are becoming quasi-denominations with their associations, training of their own leaders apart from denominational seminaries and use of the social sciences to stimulate growth. One wonders what will happen when their talented leaders pass on. Some of these groups seem to let technique or means take precedence over desirable ends. Many seem to pay little attention to missions, but at least they are reaching the baby boomer, highly educated, suburban, middle-class denomination dropouts, are they? We have gone from local churches as a unit in a universal medieval church to units in the state Protestant church, to the local church as a unit in a denomination. Now, megachurches are challenging declining liberal denominations or evangelical denominations as denominational loyalty weakens. George Gallup Jr. and Robert Withnow have studied megachurches and other large churches that adopted decentralization in cells, house churches, or small satellite churches to keep from losing the individual in the large church. Cells or small groups are not new. The house churches of the New Testament Church and of the 20th century Communist China, the Anglican societies of the 17th century and 18th century Methodist classes of the 12 12 people organized under a lay leader to collect money for the poor and to check spiritual progress and the Roman Catholic Church-based cells in Latin America are all similar. Roman Catholic-based cells began in Brazil in about 1968, 10 of 25 people meet to study the Bible and to apply it to social problem of oppression and poverty. They view the exodus of Israel from Egypt from Egyptian oppression as the prototype of contemporary liberation movements. Many use Marxian methodology and considered Christ to be the revolutionary activist of liberation theology. In Bible study, eisegesis has virtually replaced exegesis. By 1986, there were more than 70,000 base cells in Brazil and 150,000 all over Latin America, with more than 40 million people studying the Bible from the viewpoint of local oppression. Now, as Wuthnow points out, large churches are decentralizing to disciple through cells or small groups. About 40% of American Christians are in small groups. These groups meet in homes or churches for Bible study and prayer, Sunday school classes, fellowship groups, to alleviate loneliness, or recovery groups to help those struggling with alcohol, drugs, or divorce. These groups facilitate recovery, teaching, fellowship, and nurture. This may be the key to success if megachurches are to survive or serve the individual. (coughs) Pardon me. Roman numeral three. Forces opposing church growth. A. The state. The all-embracing state in its dictatorial fascist, democratic socialist, dictatorial communist, and democratic warfare, welfare forms in the 20th century seem to threaten the very existence of the church. Danger from German Nazism or Italian fascism has defeated was defeated in World War II. However, socialist and even democratic capitalist states are pushing or have pushed religion out of the public sector to privatize it. The virulent hatred of the liberal left against Christians in the new right in its various forms, such as Pat Robertson's Christian Coalition and similar movements in the United States, demonstrates this. 
While the First Amendment of the Constitution has traditionally been interpreted as banning state churches and hindering free exercise of religion, the Supreme Court had, and some acts of Congress, have employed it to limit free expression and peaceful demonstration. The real and present danger of privatizing religious or moral expression needs to be resisted by the Church. Heading B. Religious Nationalism Religious nationalism is still a threat to missions and national churches in many lands. Aggressive, oil-rich Islamic states such as Saudi Arabia and Iran, as well as Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the Saudi and the Sudan hinder the preaching of the gospel or bar it altogether, and in many cases persecute Christians. Nationalistic Hinduism in India bars new missionaries from getting visas to India. There has been some response to Christianity in Indonesia and the Islamic states of the Russia, of the Russian Commonwealth, but Islam and Eurasia and Africa has been hostile to Christianity. In the northern Sudan, over 1.1 million black southern Christians have been killed through the Islamic government. As many as 300,000 were martyred in the world. In one year, in the early 90s, martyrdoms average about 150,000 per year. Persecution comes mainly in communist, Islamic, and Hindu countries. Religious Cults, Heading C. Religious cults in North America attract large numbers of people and oppose the church. Many unhappy souls who are dissatisfied with the lack of authority and liberalism turn to the message of, of theological or ethical absolutism proclaimed by the various cults, many of which have arisen since World War I. The doctrines of cults are developed outside the pale of the church, and the leaders of cults seek to win converts from the church by proselytizing and by meetings, home visitation, or correspondence courses. The cults not only claim to have final or absolute answers to the problems of health, sorrow, popularity, and success, but they also offer an authority that they hunger that the hungry soul cannot find in liberal Protestant churches. They are often deceptive, exclusive, and negative toward culture. Older cults, such as spiritualism, theosophy, new thought, unity, and Christian science, oppose materialistic interpretations of the universe and assert its unity and spiritual nature. Spiritualism, in particular, grew fast after World War I because those who had lost loved fathers, husbands, and brothers in the war sought to communicate with them through mediums. Both unity and new thought were developments of the Kimby or Quimby process of mental healing that Miss Mary Baker Eddy had used to, at, to good advantage in building up Christian science. Charles Fillmore, who had been a cripple from infancy, and his wife, Myrtle, who had tuberculosis, developed the idea of their unity with God so that illness and poverty could have no hold on them. Their groups grew so much that the leaders of the movement have built Unity City near Kansas City, Missouri. The Russellites, or as they prefer to be known since 1931, Jehovah's Witnesses, were founded in 1874 by Charles T. Russell, whose avid study of the Bible led him to oppose the churches and minister as tools of the devil and to preach the doctrine of Christ's return and the participation of the Witnesses in that event. Because they claim that their only allegiance is to God, members of Jehovah's Witnesses will not salute the flag nor serve in the armed forces. Their leaders were not recognized as ministers in World War II. Joseph F. Rutherford, a Missouri lawyer, became the leader of the cult upon Russell's death in 1916, and the movement, which was incorporated as the Zion Watchtower Tract Society in New York in 1884, distributes millions of books and tracts. It is estimated that there, are, there were about 4.3 million adherents in the United States and over 3 million in the rest of the world in 1991. They deny Christ's deity and a biblical view of his second coming. The Oxford Group, or Buckmanites, did not constitute a particular organization, but sought to work in the churches somewhat after the fashion of the pietists who desired to rejuvenate Lutheranism in the 17th century. Frank N. D. Buckman, the leader, 
had been a Lutheran minister in Pennsylvania who became dissatisfied with his spiritual experience. He tried to reach the well-to-do and educated through his gospel of the changed life, sharing or confession to the group, guidance, and the four absolutes of honesty, purity, love, and unselfishness. House parties for personal witnessing and public confession have been the method of operation adopted by the group. It has won many notable converts and even sought as moral rearment, rearment, its new name, to prevent the coming of World War II by winning the leaders of states to Christianity. It has helped the educated and rich, whom the church often fears to challenge with the claims of Christ, lest it lose their support. Two weaknesses of the group are that the lack of the, a sound theology may lead to the substitution of the feeling of release after one has publicly confessed sins. For real regeneration, the confession may be directed only to man rather than to God. More recent occult and eastern cults from Asia have won many western young people who are seeking inner peace and security. Astrology has become a religion to some, as the magazines and uh, on astrology on newsstands indicate, Satan worship and witchcraft cults have their devotees in Europe and the United States. Buddhism, forms of Hinduism, Hare, Krishna, transcendental meditation, and assorted gurus claim the allegiance of many, especially young people. These groups, however, seem to have peaked in membership. The Unification Church of Sun Myung Moon, founded in 1954 in Korea, now with about 300,000 followers, the Church of Scientology, under the leadership of L. Ron Hubbard, with headquarters in England, The Way International, led by Paul V. Wormerville, a Princeton Seminary alumnus, are, rep are reputed to practice something like mind control over their followers. The new convert is surrounded by loving concern, given much work, little sheep, little sheep and a low-protein diet and urged to listen to repetitious tapes and speeches by the leader. The PFAL course taken by all members of The Way in 12 three-hour sessions over three weeks costs $85. The denial of the essential deity of Christ and the ant and antinomian morals divide these cults from Orthodox Christianity. Many young people seem to be attracted to them. The New Age cult has been popularized by Shirley MacLaine, in her autobiography, Out on a Limb, and her Human Potential seminars that reputedly earn her $4 million a year. This is one of a number of philosophic cults that depend on Hindu philosophy imported to this country by various gurus and swamis, and by American tourists returning from India. Pantheism and monism, which state, All is God and God is all, become an assertion that we are divine and that through reincarnation we will eventually realize the divine in us and create a perfect earth in the age of Aquarius. Truth may come through people who become channels for ancient beings. Mrs. E. A. Knight claims that the 35,000-year-old Ramtha gives truth through her. The divine is also manifested through crystal balls, tarot cards, and the like. Members probably do not exceed 20,000 people, but the cult is influential through corporate seminars, public schools, readings, and the words of popular idols like Maclean. New Age denies the transcendence of God, the deity of Christ, and the depravity of man. It is a turning to the spiritual in man apart from the spirituality God imparts. In the New Age, worship of the self, or the mammon, or materialism, or Venus, and a preoccupation with sex seem to be characteristic of our age in its search for reality. We will leave off reading this chapter at this point. Our next episode will pick up where we left off.